the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gap number 438 for Sunday, February 24th, 2013. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you tune in to learn new stuff. We answer questions. We share our tips. We share your tips. We share cool stuff found that everybody finds. And together, as I said, we all come here to learn something new here in the winter wonderland of Durham, New Hampshire. Today, I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's a winter wonderland here. Here, here in the... Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing today, John F. Braun? It's melting. Actually, the snow. There's still some snow down from the uh, from the the blizzard. Huh. Well, that yeah we oh yeah we have tons of snow here. In fact, we were getting more this morning, which is why I called it a winter wonderland. But uh, yeah, we got like three promises of snow, and none of them transpired. <laughs> it was like last last Wednesday, this uh, today or yesterday, it was supposed to, and we, we got nothing. Yeah, we were we were supposed to get you know whatever six inches last night, and got none of it. And then at about I guess about eight o'clock this morning, um, the next wave of this started. But I'm not sure how long it's going to last. But it doesn't matter because we're here now, and that's a. Uh, that's a good thing. You know, John, uh, in, in the effort to always mix things up, I want to uh, I'll mix it up again. I'm going to start with our first sponsor here, John, which is today Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is. Well, they are a web uh, web hosting company, but you you really they are a web creation tool is is what they are. It's uh it's so it's an online website creation tool and they make it so easy and they host your site, but you can create it right there in the web browser. You, you just go to squarespace.com slash MGG, right? And that um, not only gives us credit for referring you, which we certainly uh, appreciate you doing, but if you use the coupon code MGG2, now it's important because the one from last month has expired. So now it's MGG2 that you use. Uh, you get 10% off your, your first purchase there. But you start for free. You, you just go there and start building a website. You pick a template and uh, and you start moving things around on the screen. You can drag artwork in from your desktop, like like from your Mac's desktop into the browser. And boom, now it's on your website. And uh, it's really, really easy to get going. You kind of pick a pick a template that not only fits your design aesthetic, but also your purpose. You know, you may be doing a website that is. You know, for me, I've got a couple of different uses, right? I might be making a website for one of the bands I'm in. So I want a template that's more uh, about, you know, creating kind of a, a visual experience, or you might be just creating a blog for yourself. And uh, and with that, you want something that's a little more utilitarian, at least in purpose. Uh, but you can still make it look really, really nice. I, uh, I And if you want, uh, if you want to sign up for your own custom domain, you know, you can do that and then you can have that domain pointing to your website at Squarespace. Or uh, if you don't want to do that, you can have your own, uh, you know, dot Squarespace dot com domain. So, you, you know, you could set up uh, Dave's special site dot Squarespace dot dot com or whatever it is you want to do. And and then that links to your site. You can edit from there. You can have like John and I could work on a site together and I can create the account 
at squarespace.com slash MGG and then give John access to it so we can have multiple people accessing it, which is great if you're creating a blog and you want to have different content partners or even just as part of the design process. So again, uh, squarespace.com slash MGG, they just added uh, what they're calling Squarespace Commerce, which is a totally built e-commerce engine. You instantly can start selling anything, online goods, traditional goods, and they've got a payment engine right there. You just implement this into your site and boom, you are done. Uh, really, really cool. It's definitely worth checking out uh, just just to see how that all that works. Uh, and and uh, I'm get, actually getting a message in the chat room from Dan C asking about this. Uh, he asked, can you manually edit H- uh, HTML? You can that you can you you build your template first and then you can go in and uh, and edit HTML right there uh, in snippets as part of the template. They actually make it really, really easy. You can edit where you'd want to edit. And then the stuff that that you wouldn't want to have to mess with, you don't have to mess with. So. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Very, 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 very cool stuff. Again, it's squarespace.com slash MGG. And but the coupon code is MGG2. And that gets you 10 percent off of your first purchase. So. All right. Uh, that's Squarespace, and we certainly appreciate having them on board. John, let's uh, let's start with a tip. Uh, we've got we've got some good tips today, and this one, Mark uh, told us about, told me about on Twitter. He said, uh, "I never realized that in OS ten point eight, holding Control and the down arrow showed recent documents for that app, not just Windows. And if you do this, if you do a Control and down arrow." In one of your apps, you get like a little browser screen at the bottom of your screen showing all the recent docs, not just the open ones. John, I searched in keyboard shortcuts and the support articles at Apple. I could not find this documented anywhere, but uh, but certainly it works. So, I you know, control and down arrow. And there it was. Yeah. And yeah, it does not do that on on uh the prior os it doesn't okay yeah. that was that was my question yeah yeah i just tried it yeah on my 1075 machine and, yep uh, so a new uh hidden hidden feature but it, but it did work for you on the mountain line machine yes well it puts me in like a, a different view a different view yeah exactly yeah awesome yeah almost like a time time machine view right right yeah it's but it comes up much faster than the time machine ever could possibly hope to because, you know, time machine just comes up slowly. Oh, look at that. If I do it in Safari, yeah. it shows me a web page and then a pop under that someone put there. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> okay. So if anything, you can use this to find those annoying pop unders. Yeah. All right. Well, that's nice. All right, John, you want to, uh, you want to take number two here or shall I keep going? Uh, whoops. <laughs> I'm looking at the wrong document here. Aha. Oh, here. I'm sorry. John. Yeah. From John. From John. So John is going to read John's question as soon as John is ready. All right. About a month ago, I noticed that the number pad on my low profile Mac Pro keyboard had stopped working. The equals divide, multiply, minus plus and enter keys work, but none of the numbers. I looked in system prefs and found nothing. 
I searched the Apple site and found nothing. I did a Google search and found nothing. I checked secrets in my system preferences and found nothing to show why the number key would not work. Can you help me or do I need a new keyboard? I have the answer, John. We can tell him really? nothing. No, no, that's not the answer. Maybe you have. A I got answer. no. I was going to write back and say I got nothing. That's funnier than what I said. That's good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You've been having caffeine longer this morning, so you're more you're more energized. I'll be there in about four minutes. Well, I got a coffee espresso mix here. I'm not sure if you're supposed to do that, but I think that's against the. Yeah, I activated. I activated both both parts of the machine this morning. (laughs) All right. Um. Well, to me, one easy way to do this. Hopefully, you have access to uh, another machine. But here's a you know just general strategy: take that keyboard, try it on another machine. Yeah, if it does, if it does the same thing, then however, I mean, it seems to me very odd that just the numbers wouldn't work and it would lead me to believe that it's not a hardware problem. But it could be actually I have had keyboards and when they fail, depending on what fails, it could be that a certain group of keys more often when I have had keyboards failed, it'd be like a certain row or column. You know, based on how keyboards work, if, you know, a piece of hardware, you know, shorts out or, or whatever, that that's, if anything, what I've seen. So, uh, you know, there may be a similar thing in the keyboard, you know, a line that handles the number input. So um, I do that first. Actually, another thing now that I'm thinking of it. OK, kind of see my pants here. Well, I, that's, that's let me finish. Let no. me finish this and then I'll give you an, another possible solution. All right. So put it on another machine. If the problem goes away, then it's a system setting. Yeah. Uh, otherwise the keyboard shot. So uh, the only system setting I could think of, Dave, that has anything to do with the keyboard is that if you go to system preferences, keyboard, duh, yeah. input sources, it'll then show you uh, how the input source is configured. And I think you may want to make sure that the, the right country is selected. Yeah. I think what that's meant to do is take keyboards that are meant for different countries and provide you a mapping. So if that, inadvertently got changed then uh the the numbers may mean something else and they're not registering that's really um the only thing i could come up with as far as how to affect the keyboard behavior there's also you know third you know i mean there's third party uh key remapping things so yeah that's true i'm sure that's not it if 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 this uh well i guess the other thing to look back here is you know, I mean, it says about a month ago, you know, what, what, what's, what, what if anything significant happened a month ago? Right. Did he and spill was Coca, there any Coca-Cola software? on his keyboard? You know, no, I'm thinking more, you know, did you install software and it may be software that has nothing to do with the keyboard, you know, it could be, right. you know, an application program or something and it just somehow screws that up. So, well, we had, we had another listener and it was a question. I, I don't think I queued up for the show, but, um, they, they had a Logitech, um, keyboard and after they installed this logitech keyboard on their machine uh their mouse started acting screwy and and their and all of their mice started acting screwy even even if they weren't connected to any of this external stuff it was on like a laptop of sorts macbook or macbook pro and uh and you know the software uh for the keyboard also included something for the mouse uh even though they didn't have a logitech mouse it installed this and and there was some setting in there that that needed to be changed because it was, you know, it had just kind of blasted this other software out there that was messing with the mouse. So the same could be true in reverse, right? Did you install some third party mouse that was made by a company that also happens to make keyboard software? And if so, did something get installed that mucked with 
the uh, kind of the default behavior of any keyboard. And, you know, you might have to dig around to, to find that. If that's the case, it might be that a test user account would behave differently. Again, depending on what user space the, the software for the third-party device runs it. That's my, uh, um, that, it's just something to, you know, something to look at. Yeah. Hold on. The other thing I was thinking of, okay. In that same menu, if you go to input sources, there's then a show input menu and menu bar. And let me look at that. All right. So then you get a new menu on your menu bar. But the, is that the one with the, the flag? Thing, uh, no, well, it could be. Yes. Hmm. In my case though. I, uh, so, well, actually on this machine here now it's showing, well, it's just an extra icon. And if you click on it, it says show character viewer and, and show keyboard viewer. Yep. And the interesting thing is that if you um, uh, go to the keyboard viewer and you hit a key, if and this would actually rule out it being, well, I don't know if it would rule it out being a hardware or software issue. But if you bring up this viewer, it'll show you your keyboard and all right. the keys. And then if you hit a key, it'll flash briefly. So if that's happening, then that would lead me to believe that it's... Um, oh, yeah that it's not a hardware problem and that the key is registering and that, yeah, it is something software that, it, you know, at that, at least at that level, it's seeing that you're pressing the key and then something somewhere else. Again, maybe the, the, I had forgot. Know, that's a good diagnostic have. tool for a variety of reasons. That's a good one, John. I, I, you know, that I actually, honestly, up until right now, I did not realize or remember, but I, I think realize is probably more accurate that this even existed in OS 10. I remember having this in OS not like OS nine, eight, seven, and six, that there was this keyboard viewer that you could mess with. And it's actually really handy because it, it um, just to kind of take it in another, in another direction. So if you do this and you go to uh, again, it's system preferences keyboard and check the box and then choose the keyboard tab and then check the box that says show keyboard and character viewers in the menu bar. Then you go up to the menu bar and you say show keyboard viewer shows you your keyboard. But what's really cool is if you were always wondering, hey, how do I make the sign for copyright? Uh, you can come in here and as you hold down modifier keys and modifier keys being option and command and all of that stuff, it will show you what happens on your keyboard and what what uh, symbols you will make. Uh, with various option keys. So, you know, hold down option and that's going to show you one thing, hold down shift with option. And that's got a whole different character set. So I realize we're taking this in a different direction here, John, but, um, but it's a good, it's a good tip. So. Yeah. Look at all those characters. I know. So here, Oh, well, this is good to know. So if I hold down option shift, Hey, it's a little apple. Yeah. That's how you make a little apple. That's how you make a Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a handy little tip. Look at how we go. All right. Hey, I got another tip. It's another handy one. Uh, and it has to do with the menu bar. So if you have your volume in your menu bar, um, and if you don't, you can put it there. System preferences, sound, and show volume in menu bar. Uh, if you have the volume in the menu bar, of course, when you click on it, you get to move your volume up and down. If you option click on your volume in the menu bar, it changes and you see a set of uh, uh, of menus there, one for choosing your output device and one for choosing your input device. Obviously, you could do this in system preferences, but this is a really handy shortcut for uh, 
for setting your input and output device, especially if you've obviously got more than one that you tend to bounce back and forth between. So that was from, uh, from Jay Seth's on Twitter the other day. So thank you, Seth or Jay Seth's or however it is you choose to be addressed when we're addressing you. I did have uh, the opportunity this week, John, you know, after CES, I, I told you, um, wait, did, did you have anything else on, on, on that or is it, should I just keep rolling here? Nope. Okay. So at, after CES or at CES, I, I mentioned that I was starting a process of uh, reviewing over the year headphones. Um, and I use CES as a great place to weed out things that I knew wouldn't sound good. Finding things that sound good on the show floor is very, very difficult. So after CES, I've been and Macworld, I've been kind of pulling in lots of different headphones and, and checking things and sort of going through the second round of testing. And unless something is so horrible that we need to do a public service announcement against buying them, we're not going to mention stuff here. I'm not going to mention stuff here on the show that I wouldn't happily buy and use uh, for myself. Um, so uh, with that today, uh, I had the opportunity and I hadn't checked these out prior. Yamaha just sent them to me. And uh, and I had the opportunity to check out Yamaha's new Pro 400 headphones. These are, again, over the ear headphones. Um, they run for two ninety nine. I'm not sure what you can get them for on Amazon. I should have checked. But uh, but they're in that kind of in that range of of decent quality, high quality, even I would say uh, over the ear headphones price wise and certainly performance wise. Um, they, so th- there's a couple of tests that I go through with uh, with these headphones when they come to the house. I mentioned this when I went through the BTs from Harman or JBL. And uh, and I'll mention it here. Obviously, I, I have some songs that I listen to looking for different things, trying to give me a very, very quick overview of, of the sound. But but obviously fit and all of that, too. These are a really, really uh, comfortable fit. They, they I find these actually a little big. I they are they are the first headphones in a long time that I would run as small as they will get. And honestly, I would like them even a little bit smaller, but but not not horribly so. Um and and I don't have them here, and I'll explain why. I have the box here, but I'll explain why in a minute. But uh, sound-wise, man, th- these are for you if you like a little bit. It's not overdone, but if you like a little bit of that extra low end, uh, it's you know again, it's not like your super heavy you know R and B style headphones that just have so much low end that you can't hear anything else. That's not the case with these. These are have a great clear view. I, the first thing I wrote down was uh, sound wise was lots of air. So you can hear a lot of the sound. You know, it's great. The, the best thing about over the ear headphones in general is that you've got speakers next to your ears again, which is awesome. You know, all these little armatures that we've been putting in ear and stuff. Uh, they, they, you know, they don't reproduce music as well. Uh, but these had a lot of air. I could hear everything, but it, there was space in there. Slight bump on the low end, kind of in the low mids that give, uh, you know, for me, it gave rock music a nice, comfortable kind of floor uh, without being too overpowering floor toms and things like that felt big and round, but, but still lots of definition, uh, acoustic guitar and electric guitar sound awesome through these, uh, just really warm, uh, with enough of that bite that, uh, that you get what you want. You know, that warmth is there, uh, Piano, listening to a piano concerto got a little bit, um, the articulation got a little bit lost. I attribute that to kind of them, these being 
air, you know, airing on the side of the little bit of that low end. It's not horrible, but if all you did was listen to piano concertos, you probably uh, wouldn't necessarily find these great, but, uh, it, but otherwise the sound really, really fantastic. And it was a pleasure to listen to these. I had them on my head far longer than uh, I intended to. And that uh, I, sh- I see as a good sign. The cables that they come with my, my daughter and, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about her in a minute, but uh, she called them the linguini cables. They're flat. So the, it's, you know, there's a lot of different designs out there to keep cables from getting tangled. And, uh, and these are, these are flat cables. So they, they look like linguini and they don't get tangled easily. There are two cables that come with it. One is just a straight cable uh, that is 10 feet long. And that's really, really handy. If you have, you know, if you want to plug into the TV for video games or whatever, it's nice to have some distance there. Then they also have a four foot cable, which has inline remote and microphone uh, to use with your iPhone or, or, or iPad or anything like that. But, uh, but the reason I don't, I have the box here, but the reason I don't have the headphones here is that my daughter is traveling this week. And as with all headphones, I have the unique ability to test these against what I call the 13 year old girl test. Now, this is a girl that cares about sound quality, but also cares about design aesthetics. And will my friends like the way they look when I am wearing them? And uh, and, you know, of course, the 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 design aesthetics wise, the kind of the, the end all be all is is, you know, the the Dr. Dre beats, right? Those headphones. That's what all the kids uh, like to be seen wearing. But uh, but as soon as these showed up. I, I tested them thankfully first, John, and then, and then I gave them to my daughter to test. And she said, uh, yeah, can I take these to New York with me? And I said, well, yeah, she said, well, you know, I'm going on the airplane and I have to get these and, uh, I have to, I have to listen to music and, and, and these are just fantastic. I said, they're not too small. It's not too big for you. Your head's not too small. She's like, nope, these are excellent. And, uh, and so she's, she's off to New York with them. And, uh, and, and that's why I don't have them here for the next couple of days. But, uh, but she liked them. She loved the sound. She loved that little bit of low end boost. And uh, she liked how soundproof they were on her head too. a very, very good seal over the ear, which is of course part of the point with the, with the over the ear headphones. So that's the Yamaha pro 400s highly recommended um, with, with the, you know, with the description that I gave you here. So it's nice to see options and it's nice that they passed the 13 year old girl test. Don't you think John? Uh, it's important. Uh, yeah, yeah, you should meet the needs of as many demographics as possible. That's right. That's that's <laughs> how I look at it. Um, well, it's interesting, though, because, you know, um, Dr. Dre with the Beats really kind of reopened up the idea that you can put headphones on your head and and have speakers near your ears and still be cool. Right. And that whole DJ, you know, uh, uh, marketplace there sort of opened that up. Uh, you know, a lot of those sound like crap, if you ask me. It's just way too much low end. So it's nice to oh, see. Maybe, maybe it's maybe it's about, yeah, just, you know, projecting your music to, to people around you and, and not so much sound quality. Well, and some <laughs> of them, that, cer- <laughs> that certainly is the case. With The nice part with these was not only uh, do they seal out a lot of the outside noise, but but. I could be next to my daughter and she, she actually is very concerned about this. She's like, look, if I'm listening to music, I don't want people around me to hear it. I want to just be able to listen and not worry that I'm bothering the person next to me on the bus or, you know, on the airplane, for example, or whatever. And, uh, and with this, it was great. You know, you can hear it, but 
it's not spilling out to everybody else with these Yamahas. So good stuff. I'm glad Yamaha reached out. Thank you. Because uh, I otherwise may not have found these. So very, very happy. And uh, hopefully she'll bring them back in one piece. Otherwise, I think I'm on the hook for them. So. You want to tell us about Chris, right. John? Yeah, you got my note there. There's a follow-up. We received a follow-up. Oh, cool. All right. So uh, if, if you look, uh, I'll look in Dropbox. Our stuff there. You that, should yeah. see a I document sh- called Time and Date Follow-up. All right. Did you put that in Dropbox or in our transporter thing? Uh, Dropbox. Okay. I, I could have put it in transporter, but I, I didn't. You didn't? All right. Enough. We'll talk about transporter in a little bit, but, uh, but yeah. Well, I should put it in there. Next time I'll put it in there. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Um, Force a habit. I understand. Yes. Mm-hmm. From, from Chris. Need your help, guys, with a problem that is currently plaguing my 2011 MacBook Pro 17-inch a.k.a. Battleship. <laughs> I, first become, I first became aware about a month ago that the time display was wrong and the computer clock is set about 11 hours into the future. Huh. This reminds me of that Steve Miller song. <laughs> time keeps on Open up the date and time... Open up the t- uh, I open up the date and time preference pane to confirm that I took the set date and time automatically and set time zone automatically option, assuming it was that simple and there was no more to it. But the problem persists. The fact is that over the past few weeks, I've spent a few hours on and off in between other tasks trying to nail the problem once and for all. All I gleaned is that a single configuration, it is not. I've tried changing the time server from Asia to Europe to US, no difference. I logged into the guest account, but with the time set to automatic, the time was wrong there too. In desperation, I tried to manually set time, but I noticed that while it works, as soon as I shut down and restart the machine, date and time reverts back to automatic configuration and the wrong time. You're my last chance, guys, to rid my computer of this curse. I've Googled this to death and I'm not making any headway. All right. Well, I don't know. If... All right. I haven't seen this one before, but I offered a, uh, a few things to try here. And then we can build on this based on what we're seeing here. So, all right. The first thing. So I asked them this question. I guess he answered. But what happens if you set the time and disable set time and date automatically? Uh, and it seems to hold it if he sets it manually. So uh, I think we can conclude. Yeah, although he said, uh, I logged into the guest account on my computer with time set to automatic. It was wrong there too. In desperation, I tried to manually set it while that works. As soon as I shut down and restart, it reverts back to automatic and then goes and gets the wrong time. Yeah. So I asked him to do it. I asked him to do it again and, and he confirmed that on manual it, it holds the time. Okay. So we got another problem here is that it seems to be enabling that checkbox. Yeah. So that, that would lead me. That it may be a plist issue. I'm not sure what plist file this is specifically uh, I, that sets I, all this stuff. I think we have two issues. Um, one is that he can't keep it on manual because that is going to be the advice here, and and I'll explain why um, if if you haven't got that. But the other piece is why it's um, um, why it's doing this. Oh, the way wait, wait a minute, no. So. Uh, he is, we want to have him set the time automatically. Okay. But we don't want to have him set the time zone automatically. That's the issue here. And, um, and, but, but the fact that he can't leave it on manual is another issue, right? He can't leave the the time on manual. (gasps) Ooh, 
Right. I mean, uh, that right. that's a, that's a plist issue. And I think it's the com.apple.systempreferences.plist file. And the way I know that is I, I pulled up all my recently modified files and we'll put a link in the show notes to that search. But, um, but that, uh, that show, I just checked. I just toggled the box and com. It's, uh, home library preferences. Com. Apple. System preferences. P list is the uh, is the issue there. So that's step one, right? Yeah. Quit everything. The way to fix that is quit everything. Delete that file immediately. Reboot. It'll create a new version of that file, and you're back in business. So right now. So then I wanted to, I just want, just want to make sure that there wasn't a discrepancy between what was being shown by the GUI and what the underlying OS thinks is happening. So there's one way you could do this is if you go in the terminal and you type date, well, it'll tell you, well, you get a bonus. It doesn't tell you, it tells you not only the date, but the time. And when I did this last night, when I was uh, addressing this, it said, well, it's Saturday, February 23rd, 191109 EST 2013. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And here's what disturbs me in that I asked him to do that as well. And uh, what he got back was Tuesday, 5 February 2013. Huh? Huh? That, that's, that's kind of in the past. You, it <laughs> like used to be. The, it used to be in the past. Yes. Actually, it used to be in the future. But now it's in the past. I wanted to make sure that... Um, and that seems to be a result of reading this, of setting it automatically. So there's something wrong. I think there's something wrong with the time servers that he's talking to. Um, here, how, how do you know what time server you're talking to? I mean, it may display something in the GUI and then I'll offer a suggestion. So it'll display in the, in the date and time uh, system preference. You know, it'll say which server it's going to. And I think the default for a lot of people is time.apple.com. Which is what he is set to uh, based on the screenshots that, yes. that he sent. Yep. Now to confirm that, you can also in the terminal... Uh, type cat, which is uh, will list the contents of a file, C-A-T, because yep. um, everybody loves cats, uh, and then slash etc slash n-t-p dot conf, C-O-N-F. What's that, you may ask? Well, N-T-P stands for Network Time Protocol, which is what's being used, uh, which is a, a server that will give you the date and time. Hooray. And it said server time.apple.com. So it matched. So it wasn't going to uh, it wasn't going to a different time server. I wanted I wanted to rule that out. And then I said maybe set the P, reset the PRAM. And that didn't seem to fix it either. It still it shows now I don't know if if Chris is in Australia because that's what it's showing. <laughs> Under set time automatically using current location. It says that he's he's in Australia. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I'm not sure if he is or not. Um, let me look at his email signature to see if that he is in Australia. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well then. Um, The only thing I think of right now, now here's something you can do though. It's certainly not obvious. You could actually put your own timer server in there. mm Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there, there's just something wrong with the, I don't know if the access is being redirected or blocked or garbled or what, but you may want to try a different time server. Now they list a few in there. Now what you can also do, of course, is click into that field and type in your own time server. Time.nist.gov is uh, the, uh, I believe the local or local 
U.S. time server, but we can we can show a uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to lots and lots of these time servers that are available. About oh, yeah. And actually, there. here's one that I found that has actually kind of a funny name. No, you may think it's funny. I don't know. Tick dot USNO. I like US that. Naval Observatory dot Navy dot mill. And you'll never guess what the name of the other one is. I know it. I know the I know this off the top of my head. It's talk. <laughs> right. Yeah. I so, used to use uh, those. I now I use time.apple.com on all of mine now, including my non Apple devices, just to make sure everything's in sync with uh, with each other. But but obviously, if that's not working, then that's bad. Um, you know, is there an Australian time server? I don't know. A, a Google search for you know Australian time servers will bring you, uh, you know, or NTP servers for Australia is probably what you want to to look for if you want something that's more local to you and not being redirected. And yes, there's au.pool.ntp.org and and all sorts of things if you search for Australian NTP servers. So. Perhaps that's the uh, that's the trick there. So I'll point to that. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I could think of here is that, well, no, it is setting the time zone properly. I I, I will. I want to add one thing. Setting is odd because I think what it does sometimes. So when you say set time zone automatically using current location, I think what it's doing is using. um, I think it can use Wi-Fi. You know, these Wi-Fi well, geo-locating services to try that, to figure out where your time zone is. And that, that could is be. what it uses. In fact, you can't do that uh, without having Wi-Fi on. So you can't set time automatically uh, if Wi-Fi is not on. And in fact, if you go into date and time time zone and turn set time zone automatically using current location on without having Wi-Fi. And, and I'm doing this now. I'm connected to Ethernet and on my iMac Wi-Fi is just disabled. Uh, it says you have to turn on Wi-Fi to determine your current location. And that, although based on your screenshots, Chris, and, and in this particular case, uh, it seems like Chris is getting the right information. Uh, you will not necessarily always get the right information. You might be better served getting it at home. But I found in hotels and traveling a lot, uh, I was in uh, Florida at a at a hotel and I turned on, you know, I, on my MacBook Air, I just have it on all the time. And it it had me in central time zone. I'm like, why did it bump me? I moved. I went I flew from, you know, New Hampshire, Boston uh, to Florida. Why am I in central time zone? And I looked and it thought I was in Austin, Texas, uh, based on whatever information it was getting from the database based on, you know, the IP address or whatever for my uh, Wi-Fi router. And so I just had to turn that off and set it manually. But uh, and in fact, now, um, well, it doesn't matter what it says now because it's not set automatically. But uh, but that's that's what goes on here. So it's craziness. So you got to watch that, that it doesn't get you in the wrong spot. So I had my my one of my my fi units always said that I was in Chicago, regardless of what state I was in. But that's okay. Yeah. The other option is, you know, you could move. Yes. That'll, I don't think that's going to solve this problem. I think killing that, whack that preferences file first, that com.apple.systempreferences.plist. That would be the first place to start, Chris. You know, we, uh, we mentioned it 
uh, in passing as you passed this file to me, John. But uh, I did want to talk about our second sponsor, which is Transporter or Connected Data is the company. Transporter is their name. FileTransporter.com slash MGG is the link to go to. This is uh, the device that allows you to set up your own personal cloud. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. I will explain. The idea is you want to share files either with yourself or with others or both. And up until now, really the only easy way to do that was with some cloud-based service like Dropbox, right? You can sign up for a Dropbox account, put files in there, and then they're shared everywhere. But your files are stored at Dropbox's location, and that may not be a good thing for a couple reasons. Number one, somebody else has your your files. Now, yeah, in theory, they're encrypted, but uh, come on, you know, somebody has. Uh, And then number two, Unless you just want to use the little bit of space that you get from Dropbox, you've got to pay every month or every year, depending on how you do it, for more. Well, that's where the file transporter comes in. This is a device that sits on your home network, and it for for you geeks out there, it's a NAS drive, right? It's a it's a it's a net, a hard drive that sits on your network and connects to your network. But for all of us, it's really a very special NAS drive. It's very purpose built. And uh, and its whole purpose is to be your personal cloud. So once you uh, plug you plug this thing into your network and then you go to their website on your Mac and you download some software and you once you've logged in and you sort of create this whole thing, uh, it magically now is syncing folders uh, with this device and anything you put uh, in these folders on your Mac automatically gets copied up to this device that has a hard drive in it. And if you go somewhere else with, say, your MacBook Pro or your MacBook Air, uh, you can connect again from remote or locally to this device and sync files back and forth. So you can put your whole documents folder, anything you want out in this transporter. And boom, now you've got it synced amongst all your Macs. You can also uh, give someone else access to one or more of the folders on your device and then they can access it from remote. And when it gets really cool is when not only do you give this person access, but if they also have a transporter, the f- you can set your two transporters to sync files back and forth. And then you both have local access. And that's exactly what John and I are doing here. When I asked him, did you put this into the connected data or the transporter folder? John's got a transporter on his network. I've got one m- mine here. And in- instead of me syncing with his transporter, my transporter syncs with his transporter. So all my Macs locally here just connect locally to my transporter. All of John's Macs connect to his transporter locally. And the data is only ever transferred once back and forth between our two transporters. So it's pretty cool. And of course, you can do this with very, very large files. Um, Chuck Joyner and I, he has the video for uh, that he took of the recent Cirque to Mac party at Macworld Expo. And I don't like to watch that right away. I, I've learned that, you know, bit, uh, picking apart gigs right away is a bad idea for me, just personally. But I, he put it up online and I said, hey, I don't want to watch it right now. Can you send me the files? And sure enough, uh, he said, well, why don't we use our transporters? I'm like, oh, I forgot you have one, too. So uh, we set up a shared folder and he put files in there. And uh, I have to say, we actually did run into a problem because these files were bigger than 4.3 gigs and there was some issue uh, with him getting files to his transporter that were larger than 4.3 gigs. But uh, we reported it to transporter support. And within 
I guess about two hours, they had found the problem and fixed it and issued a fixed. And now the files are syncing up. And uh, as we speak, I think that the first one is in and here and it works. And the second one is uh, on its way. So, uh, so it's, it's all good. So, you know, for, for, for somebody like for, for us, John, right. You know, we have to share these PDFs back and forth for the show every week. And we both dump PDFs into a folder and, you know, you put stuff in, I put stuff in. And with this, it's just magically synced on all of our Macs. It's pretty good stuff. And actually, if you look, Dave, can you look at, uh, so, so you and I are, are uh, sharing a Mac Geek Gab folder. Yes. Uh, do you see anything in there? Hang on. I'm going to bet you see something extra in there because, so my transporter, so, so if you uh, pop the cover off, it'll show you uh, what the various uh, LED colors mean. And yes. normally, or at least it's running now, it's blue. But then what I did is I copied a file over into uh, our shared folder, and then all of a sudden it started pulsing blue. Uh-huh. I looked on the key here, and that means it's transferring data. So I'm almost positive what it did is took the file that I copied in that shared folder and now, we, we, uh, you and I have a couple it. shared folders. Am I, am I looking in my Mac Geekab folder? Geekab. Okay. Yes. And I don't see it yet. So, let me look here. But I do have this big transfer going with Chuck Joyner, so I don't know if that, um, that file is, you know, about six gigs. So, is it just on the top level of our Mac Geekab folder? Yes. So I have uh, MGG 437 and MGG 438 in there, but I think those were there before. Yeah, well, there's that that file that that we uh, we just shared that I put there. Oh, so it may take a while to get to you. Yeah, no, no, no. I see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Magically, and so now, it's there. And I looked. So on. Uh, so I copied it on my mini, which has the software installed, and there's a connected data folder within our shared folders. And I just looked on my MacBook Pro, and the file appeared there too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting. All of a sudden, I saw the light pulsing, and I'm like, okay, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it, it actually thing. pulses in your menu bar, too. So you can see, I can see mine is pulsing in my menu bar, not because my Mac is transferring anything, but because my transporter is, and it's getting that that file from uh, from Chuck. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and you know, we've got, uh, our transporters each have one terabyte drives in them. You can put two terabyte drives in these things, too. And putting drives in is really easy. I don't know if you took yours apart. I know ours came with drives in them, but I immediately took mine apart. There's a, a, a caddy. Uh, the, the drive, you don't just dump the drive in there. There's, there's a little caddy that kind of holds it in place, and, and then you put that in. But it requires no screws whatsoever. The, uh, the caddy is plastic and it's flexible and you kind of peel the caddy off of the drive or, or peel the caddy onto the drive. And it has little nubs that would fit into the screw holes, but it's all just plastic um, and it holds fine. And then you just drop it in and gravity kind of holds it in the in the thing. It also snaps in uh, too, and then you screw the top on and you're good to go. It's this tiny little device. It's uh, it's awesome. It really, you know, there there are lots of things out there that have been able to do this kind of thing, but nothing I've found does it this easy, John. So uh, I I really I'm looking forward to seeing it, seeing it get out there and we can get you a special on these. So if you go to filetransporter.com slash MGG, the uh, the um, transporters, uh, if it's one ninety nine naked, empty, no drive, two ninety nine with a one terabyte drive and uh, three ninety nine with a two terabyte drive. We save you ten percent uh, with the coupon code MGG or Mac Geekab. I think either one will work. So, uh, so coupon code is MGG. 
So that saves you 10%. If you're buying from connected data, if you choose to buy from Amazon or anybody else, that coupon uh, doesn't work. It's only going to work with them. But, uh, but you know, if you buy a two terabyte transporter, you're saving 40 bucks. That's a pretty good. That's a good deal. And they've got a 30 day money back guarantee. But um, my guess is that you, you won't want to take advantage of that. But it is nice to know it's there. I totally get that. So filetransporter.com. We have a question. Uh, is the data uh, on the transporter cached on your Mac? What happens if you take a laptop, for example, to the coffee shop? Do you lose access? Okay, yeah, good question. Um, the data is cached on your Mac. You have local copies on your Mac and copies on the transporter, with the, with the exception that you can set local preferences on your Mac to either not, you can go folder by folder. So you can say, I only want to sync these folders locally. Um, and then the other ones only have access when I'm on my local network. That's fine. And then you can also set that you only want local copies of folders below a certain size. So if you know somebody creates a, a 30 gig folder on the transporter, which you certainly can do, uh, you don't you don't automatically get that, you know, chewing up space on your Mac. So by default, if things are below, I think it's set to 10 gigabytes by default. Any folder that's out there below 10 gigs is, is going to be synced, but you can individually turn those on and off and then also set the automatic settings uh, as well. So I think that answers the question. And can you use it with iPhoto and iTunes libraries? Um, I, that you certainly can use it with an iTunes library. Um, I see no reason why it wouldn't work with iPhoto, but I have not tried that yet. Um, it, that would get a little weird. I don't know that you would want to do that with your even with your iTunes library, I don't know that you'd want to do that because now you're syncing it with multiple devices and syncing an iPhoto or even I, iPhoto might actually be a better solution. iTunes gets weird when you start syncing it to multiple devices. You got to be really careful. These are all, you know, iPhoto and iTunes are single purpose things. So, um, yeah. Oh, good point. So, yeah, you, you so te- I mean, you can store any file on this. I mm. mean, any Mac file. So you could, but yeah, Dave, you have a good point is that if you have multiple people trying to access uh, whatever type of library, whether it be iTunes or iPhoto or Aperture, that that's usually not, not a great yeah, idea. Be, 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 with great power comes great responsibility. And, and those are the, the issue is those apps are not built to deal with multiple people messing with the same file. So, all right. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, as I said, that, so that turned into a bit of a Q and a, I knew that we'd have some information. I knew that people would want to know more about that. So it's a new product. It's cool stuff. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we, it started as a cool stuff found mention. So, um, anyway, started, started a couple of weeks ago at Macworld Expo, actually that's cool stuff found, but it's time to move on to Tony and Tony has, uh, Tony's got something to say. Hey guys, just noticed uh, uh, after the latest iOS update, I'm not sure if it's been in that or been with us a little bit longer, but um, in search results for apps on the phone, uh, now on the right side of the screen, it'll show what the nesting folder, if you've got folders of apps, it'll, it'll give you the folder name where that app happens to be, which is really helpful for navigation. That's it. Thanks again for all you do. Hey, thanks, Tony. You know, that's this, there's so many things I noticed during the day that I don't write down to talk about in the show. Uh, and I, when I saw Tony's note, I was like, oh, yes, I use this all the time. I have a lot of apps on my phone and I've got them in nested folders and they're sort of barfed all over the place, to be honest with you. 
And sometimes I want to find an app sometimes to delete it. Uh, and now with this update, uh, you know, I can because it I search for it and it tells me what folder it's in. It's like, oh, great. Now I can go find that and uh, and either move it around or delete it or do it, whatever I want. So thanks, Tony. Good stuff. I think it's time to move to John's question. Yes, John. Another John. This is like the John show. It is the John show. Maybe we should. Maybe that's what we'll call it. Um, so at, John has kind of a, a bit of a follow up question. He says, uh, I listened to show 434 on your discussion uh, about configuring two routers and was hoping you could expand, expand on the topic a bit uh, from this discussion and others. I understand at a high level the necessity to put one of the routers in bridge mode and have only one router managing the traffic. Very good. Uh, he says you explained that very well. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm glad that's that's our goal. Uh, also, it appears that it's OK to have the router that's in bridge mode on either side of the router that's managing the network either either facing the incoming Internet signal from the ISP or between the router and a device on the network uh, extending the Wi-Fi. And that was true in that case on that particular show it says I have a situation similar to what you described and that my ISP provided DSL modem is also a router. And then I have a time capsule. I want the time capsule to do all the work. So my question is. Why do I need the ISP's device at all? Couldn't I simply plug the time capsule into the phone line and use it? You mentioned that when in bridge mode, the router acts almost as a virtual cable and simply passes the signal on. Why then is it needed at all? So and then he goes on a bit and he says, really, the question kind of boils down to what's the difference between a modem and a router? And it is an excellent question. Uh, it's one of those things that once you understand it sort of becomes an obvious thing. But if you don't, then it's a, it's a valid question. And, and having the answer will help you kind of manage your own home network. So uh, in short, the router is what talks to the Internet on your behalf. And the modem is what allows your router to talk to the Internet. OK, what, I, what do I mean by that? Uh, in most cases, and right now I'm going to temporarily accept the situations like yours and Chad's where the modem is also a router. So let's just talk about the modem portion of it. And sometimes in one box, you're going to have two of these devices or two functions served. But right now we're just talking about the modem. Uh, the modem acts as a bridge in most cases. Uh, it is, however, not just a dumb device that passes things through. It is a smart device in that it communicates with your ISP, your cable co company, your DSL company, and it decides whether or not to let you online. So, for example, if you don't pay your cable bill, the cable company can set your modem as disallowed. And then your router doesn't have any ability to talk on the Internet because the modem acts as a gateway. That, again, brings up the question of why couldn't I just remove the modem? Well, uh, the modem does some more than just that. The signal that you get from your cable company comes via a coax uh, cable. You plug coax into the modem. The modem takes the signal from the coax, modulates and demodulates, modulates, demodulates, M-O-D-E-M. -E That's where you find the name modem. Takes that signal and turns it into something that can speak uh, Ethernet. And then that's what comes out the Ethernet port and you plug into your uh, your cable modem. OK, uh, for DSL, the modem 
has a phone line, but again, it's doing some, that same modulation and demodulation. It's not, you can't just plug your phone line into your time capsule and expect it to work for DSL. Um, that's not going to happen. So you need the modem to do that. And in DSL, you also often, not always, but often have to log into the modem and give the modem your credentials that the, uh, that the phone company has given you to, to connect. So you definitely need the modem. And in most cases, for most of us that want to do at least a little something geeky, you probably don't want the modem acting as a router if you can get away with it. Um, that, that, and that's what we went through kind of in, in show 434 with Chad, but uh, having him turn off the routing functionality and just making the modem into this sort of dumb pass, quote unquote, pass through device uh, is is handy. So hopefully that explains the difference. The modem takes the signal, converts it into something that can talk on your network and also is the gatekeeper that allows your router and any devices past it to talk out on the Internet. So. Or quite simply, the modem is on both sides talking to routers. Mm hmm. That's true. That on one side, the Ethernet part. So don't let the medium confuse you. Is that the 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 Ethernet port? So it's a, it, you know it's pretty obvious that the Ethernet port that you plug into your uh, Airport Extreme time capsule, whatever. Yep. Um, that's one end, but the coax that's coming out of the modem is actually at some point talking to a router at the cable company. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, that's right. And the modem is facilit facilitating the communication between your router. And that router at the cable company, because we don't have Ethernet strung everywhere. So we're using these different transport mediums to get the data across and the modem takes care of that. Yeah. Oh, uh, pretty much. Yeah. All right. Good. Hopefully that that helps answer. Um, I gave a talk at Macworld on. I forget what we even called it, but being a home network administrator now. Right. And we went into some of this because it is sort of, you know, we're all many of us are stuck in this role of managing a network in our homes. Now, some of us really like this and we got to go, go overboard like I've done here. And I'm sure like you've done at home, John. But uh, for most of us, you just want it to work. And uh, but yet you're in this role of having you, you might have 10 devices on your network. Now, between iOS devices and uh, Macs and your, you know, the transporter is another device and your TiVo is a device and Sonos is a device or many devices. You know, you could you could easily in your home have 10, if not 30 devices trying to connect to the network. And, uh, you know, if you've got a wireless printer, that's another device. And uh, and it gets crazy. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, small offices didn't have 10 devices. You know, I managed um, when I was in Austin, I managed several offices worth of uh, computers that had like six or eight devices on the network. And that was it. You know, and that was normal. And then and then it, it, and then smartphones entered the picture and tablets and all these other fun things. All right. You got uh, you got something here, John? Oh, I, oh, I, 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 I got Jeff. It's me, isn't it? All right. Uh so Jeff, we've been, we talked about Wi-Fi syncing on a recent show and he, Jeff found a link at OS 10 daily, how to fix Wi-Fi syncing in iTunes. And the trick is to force quit a process on your Mac called Apple mobile device helper. 
and you can find this in activity monitor. And that's the thing you quit iTunes. You force quit this, this, uh, this process. And then you relaunch iTunes and, uh, it restarts this process. And for many of, uh, of the folks out there, it solves this issue, this issue. So we will put a link to that in the show notes. And we will also say thank you, Jeff, because that's good stuff. All right. And with that, John, it is back to you and back to yet another John. <laughs> this John is me. Oh, it is you. That's right. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, but uh, I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. So this is actually maybe a stump the geek or, or what's going on here. But. So I noticed after. Uh, as you may know, my machine had a meltdown, and so I basically reinstalled the OS and, and you know restored all my data. And for the most part, because I make lots of backups of things, everything's gone very smoothly, a lot smoother than I than I thought actually. Especially bringing over you know photos and stuff like that. For the most part, it just involves you know bringing the stuff for my backup. Sure. But here's one problem that I had, and I found someone else online who had the same problem, and I don't know why I'm having this problem, Dave. So I was running mail, and. Uh, hooked it up with my existing accounts, uh, IMAP accounts, and, and exported and copied over the stuff that was stored locally, and everything seems to be okay. Then I started, uh, I didn't bring my rules over. And so I started defining uh, new rules, and I figured I should probably clean them out anyway. So start from scratch and, you know, set up the rules. So, you know, if it come, most of my rules are if it comes from a certain uh, email address, then file it away in this folder, you know, like bills for certain companies and, and things like that. Sure. So I did this, and uh, and also I, I use spam Um uh, to uh, handle spam. Sure. So, because I bought that years ago. So, you know, I set all this stuff up here. Everything's great. And then I quit mail, you know, and then uh, run it a little later. And all of a sudden, two things happen. One, it starts highlighting all these messages as spam. And I'm like, well, no, I, I turned off Apple to handling the spam. I, I got spam sieve and I know I clicked the box saying shut it off. And then the other thing is uh, I set up uh, all the rules. And the thing is, I look at the rules and they're all gone. And the default Apple rule is there again. I'm like, what? No, I know I define these. Come on. And I even looked in my mail preferences and I saw files that seem to have the current time and date when I added new content. I'm like, what's going on here? So I searched around and I actually found a discussion thread, Dave, uh, on the Apple some more communities with people having this exact problem. Now, there's a solution, but it's not a great one. Okay. I'm just wondering why this is happening. So I'm throwing it to the, the peanut gallery, and, and you're a, you know honorary member of the peanut gallery. <laughs> well, thank you. I, That's, assume you I assume you like peanuts. But, I do. Um, I, have, I, I may have a mild allergy to them, but, uh, but nothing, nothing severe enough to keep me from eating them. So yes. Yes. So here's how to solve the problem. And I don't like this, but it worked. So I went into iCloud or the iCloud system preferences. Mm hmm. Let me bring that up here. Yeah, go ahead. Live. So That's click right. on iCloud. And then the list here, it shows the items that uh, I guess you would like to sync with iCloud. And there's mail, contacts, blah, blah, blah. And then there's one called documents and data that I never really paid attention to. And, I'm, and here's what the discussion thread said the solution is. And I confirmed it. Turn that off. I'm like, okay. I turned that off, defined a few rules, unchecked that preference. Yeah. Quit mail, started it up again, and all the changes took hold. Why is enabling iCloud documents and data preventing me from saving my mail app prefs is the question. Because it is. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it happen in front of my eyes. And yeah. I, I didn't do anything 
unusual in the setup of my machine and that I started from scratch. You know, MailApp was already there. If anything, I, you know, set up new accounts and imported stuff. But why is it, why is iCloud being stupid? <laughs> why is iCloud doing this to me, I guess? I mean, I'd set up iCloud like I always did, you know, same account. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if I should ditch iCloud or reset or reinitialize iCloud if there's even a way to do that. I really haven't had a need, but now I do. But well, you know what's interesting is currently there is no way to sync mail rules um, from one Mac to the other. However, there used to be with MobileMe. And we know that iCloud replaced MobileMe, but more than that, iCloud kind of is MobileMe in some ways and not all but inherited a lot from that. And it seems like what you and, and obviously many others are running into is exactly that, that there's some lingering bit of cruft from not, not on your machine. I mean, perhaps on your machine, but, but in, in Apple's code, it's mucking with syncing of mail rules, even though you're not actually syncing mail rules anymore. I mean, otherwise it doesn't make sense, right? You know, here's this thing that used to sync mail rules. We took that away. We replaced it with this other thing that now is getting in the way of you editing your mail rules. I, you know, Occam's razor, right? Simplest answer is something's still lingering there in the code. Now, what you could look at is, you know, using that, that same tip that we talked about earlier, the, the finding modified files uh, trick, and and keep that window open in the finder that shows you all the modified files. And we do have a link in the show notes for that. Uh, keep that open, sort it by most recently modified. So you see things kind of percolating to the top of that list and then start editing preferences one at a time and watch what files get edited. There might be a, pre a P list or something that that needs to be whacked and might fix that. And it might have a might be a P list to do with iCloud. So. Yeah, it could be because I see two files here that I, I don't recall seeing in the past. One is called synced and one is called unsynced rules.plist. Yeah, see, those, neither of and those they both should have exist. the same. Mm. Right. I mean, you're not syncing your mail rules. So why are they there? And then rules active state.plist is another file. So there's a number of rule files in the uh, mail data folder. Yeah which is in the home folder. So there's home library mail and then mail data, I think is, is the folder I'm looking at here. Uh, what kind of, what operating oh, I'm sorry, system mail are you on? V2, uh, the latest. Okay. Yeah. So that's library right. that's mail right. V2 mail data. Yeah. There's several preference files that look to be touched, but yeah, as you pointed out, there's some here that, that doesn't make sense. I do they're... though. I see synced rules and synced files info. Yeah. yeah. Huh? Unsynced. What a mess. So I don't mess. know if maybe I should, maybe I should uninstall and re uh, uh, deactivate and reactivate my iCloud. I don't know. Yeah. Huh. Or quit mail and remove those synced rules and unsynced rules thing, you know, make a backup mm -hmm. obviously, but move those out of the way and see what, see what happens. That's what I would do. You know, yeah, like but it, uh, it warmed my heart that other people were, were suffering. It is. <laughs> Misery loves company. It is true. <laughs> And uh, yeah, another and, and no one has yet offered a solution other than, yeah, when you want to do this, turn off documents and data iCloud yeah. syncing. And then when you're done, turn it back on. It's like unlocking and locking. You just have to know the secret handshake. So, all right, John, jump to uh, let's go to Brad. I want to uh, I want to talk about this because I, I might have a, like a, a magic answer. 
Well, I think I had a magic answer. Oh, I'm sure you did. Hold on. Where is he? And I don't know why this happens. Ah, oh, there we go. Okay. Hey, guys. I have Dropbox, Box.com, SkyDrive, iCloud, and SugarSync. He's got it all. Altogether, I probably have 100 gigs of cloud storage, but the problem is in order to back up files to most of these services, you have to have the files within their specific folders. Is there a way around this? I would love to be able to back up 15 gigs of photos, but not have to make a second copy of my iPhoto library inside my Dropbox folder or inside my Box.com folder. And here's the answer or an answer. There's lots of answers. Uh, my reply was was as follows. Um, although there are services like CrashPlan that are specifically geared towards file backup, I think you can accomplish this with a cloud service as well. One suggestion from Dropbox is to move the file to the Dropbox folder and then create an alias to it and place it where the file used to be. And I link to a little Dropbox help article that basically says this. So yeah. that's one way to do it. <laughs> That is one way and to I think do we've it. Heard, and I think we've heard people say that, yeah, that, 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 that works fine. Um, here's the other one, though, that, that I didn't know if it would work. But um, th- this is if you're talking the sugar sink service. Yep. And they're a little different from the other guys, or, or at least the ones that I've used, in that they support both a Dropbox model, which is like a group folder in that, you know, everybody sees everything in this shared folder. But sugar sink also lets you sync individual folders uh, on specific computers. Yeah. That, that's actually so, pretty awesome because you can have, it, you know, you have your same SugarSync account link to all your computers, but just one folder from, you know, you, you can have one folder that's only synced to one computer and, and you're essentially using SugarSync like an offsite backup for that one folder. It doesn't have to be yep. synced to all your, all your computers. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Now, here's the only thing. It's like, oh, no, SugarSync lets you sync folders, not not files. Right. Well, the good news is a lot of these files are actually folders, and I verified you can do this. So yeah. if you run the SugarSync software and say, show me the folders uh, that I can sync, it'll show you Aperture because Aperture is actually a package, which is actually a folder. Right. Uh, and it'll appear in the list. So it, it looks a little funky in that it'll appear as aperture library dot a P L I B R A R Y in the list. Ah. But uh, iPhoto library will just show up as iPhoto library. Yep. So because they are packages or folders, uh, sugar sync, I think is one nice solution. Now the thing is you may have not have uh, oodles of space on your sugar sync, especially if you have the cheap cake, cheap skate package like I do. Right. Well, I have, I have an answer for you cheap skates out there. Uh, so you can go and get, you know, whatever, five gigs or two gigs from drop file, however many it is. You can get some amount of free space from Dropbox and some amount of free space from SugarSync and some amount of free space from Box.com. But how do you use them all together? Well, there is a piece of software called GoodSync, and it is sort of a meta syncing engine. And it then will you kind of pump stuff into GoodSync and it can spread it across all of your services Without you having to really worry about where it goes and puts things. Now, obviously, doing this is, you know, fraught with opportunities for disaster if, in fact, one of the services goes down, right? It's like having a RAID drive in the cloud, right? Um, But it'll, it'll work with Google Docs. 
Windows, you know, the Windows Azure thing, the Amazon Cloud Drive, SkyDrive, you know, and Dropbox and, you know, uh, lots of others. So it's an interesting concept that they've that they've pulled together over it at uh, with, with good sync. And so I like that. Yeah. You know, it almost reminds me. Remember when Gmail first came out, somebody put a hack together that would yes. actually use Gmail and it's a relatively monstrously huge uh, amount of storage space it gave you and tricked it into using it as disk storage. Yeah. I think it was actually storing encoded, you know, blocks of email data, uh, but it was translating it. And then I think eventually Gmail got wise to that and put something in there. So you couldn't do that anymore. But yeah, no, I like that how it uh, distributes. Uh, oh yeah. It sounds like, well, there's a, uh, yeah, I think I, I looped you in on a, 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 conversation just this week with uh with their pr department so they're right there ready for you if you want to test it i i thought it was right up your alley so i was glad that you pulled up this question too because it's the same you know it's the same kind of thing so andrea at their pr company is what you want to look for in there in your in your vast email archives so all right um where are we time-wise here uh, you know, it's, I got one tip to share, maybe two, maybe we can get both these out of the way quick. Um, and then, and then we are, we are pile, piling up cool stuff found. We may be building up to a cool stuff found show, whether we like it or not. And sent in a tip. She says, you were talking about Comcast in a recent podcast and I have a simple Comcast cable modem. I recently bought a Canon printer that supports air print for my iPad and iPhone and everything works great. I went to help a friend set up her printer to do the same. She has a cable modem from Comcast that includes the phone and a wireless router. Uh, The only way we could print is if we powered down the modem and the printer and then powered it back up. After a certain timeout period, the iPad would again no longer see the printer uh, and we had to do it over and over again. We spent a lot of time with Comcast support. They would not acknowledge that it was their problem. However, The solution was for us to just set up an old wireless Linksys modem to manage the network. Comcast had to turn off the wireless and routing features on their cable modem, and then we could print every time. So uh, thank you, Ann, for sending this through. So this is interesting. AirPrint relies on what Apple calls Bonjour, which is a protocol that lets uh, devices on a network register with one another without having any really real central server. But... If the router is not happily allowing these packets to pass back and forth from one device to the other, Bonjour doesn't work and therefore AirPrint won't work. And so for what it's very rare and odd that a router would not pass these packets, but anything's possible. And clearly in Ann's case, it sounds like Comcast was not passing those packets. So if you are having AirPrint problems, uh, know that it could be that your router is not passing bonjour packets back and forth between, uh, between your devices. So stranger things have happened, John. And that is as uh, I, I forget, I forget who's mentioning it. Brian in the chat room is mentioning, this is exactly why you want to manage your own stuff and be able to use a router that, you know, um, that you know is going to be able to do things and that you can talk to. So, all right. And then one last one, uh, kind of along the Dropbox lines, a, a tip from from uh, from Carl. He says uh, you've reached recently mentioned Dropbox, which, and we have just moments ago. He says uh, 
like uh, like Dave, my desktop folder used to look like a bomb and hit it. For me, the solution was to install a new folder labeled active in my Dropbox folder and then create an alias on my desktop to that active folder. Now, instead of using my desktop as a file repository for all the daily junk and active projects, I simply save directly into the active folder. In this way, my desktop is kept tidy and my active folder becomes available across all my computers. And uh, and that's a good little tip. I like that. Uh, you know, we, we just having that stuff and you could do that with anything. You could do that with, you know, sugar sink Dropbox. You could do it if you have a transporter right now. You're managing. I really I've become enamored and I've been doing this for about the last year. Um, it's been possible with my Synology disk station. In fact, you and I even messed with it somewhat, John, uh, doing the whole personal cloud thing. And uh, and I haven't stored I, we've stored our Mac Keycap files on Dropbox, but I haven't stored personal data on any public cloud service uh, in over a year. I've been doing the personal cloud thing with uh, with my disk station. And now, of course, I can do it with the transporter. There's no effective difference in the end, but uh, but the transporter is way easier to set up than the disk station. You just plug in the transporter and, and go to the website and you're done. The disk station, I had to kind of go through some hoops, but I'm a geek and I like that stuff. But yeah, the whole personal cloud thing is good. I, um, I like it. It's, uh, it, it makes, you know, just makes me happy because it's my data. And so I store it and that's good. I do back up to the cloud, but that's all way encrypted with a key that only I know. Whether that's good or not, I don't know. How about a thumb drive? Do you uh, do you also you you utilize a thumb drive for backup? Not often, no. Um, my kids use thumb drives a ton, going back and forth between here and school. Uh, but no, I don't. I don't do any you know one-off backups to a thumb drive. I do a clone to a drive that's actually internal to my iMac. I do a local backup to either my. Uh, in a, I do a local backup with Time Machine to some NAS drive here. I've got a couple of them. I actually have one NAS drive at the house and one at the office, so all the computers in the house back up to the office. All the computers at the office back up to the house, and they're about, what, 75 feet apart. So it would have to be a pretty big fire to take out both. Uh, <laughs> so that there's you know a bit of kind of local off-site, and then I use CrashPlan for my... Uh, Truly offsite, you know, total disaster recovery. But that's what's oh, encrypted. Yeah. That's what's encrypted with a key that. That, that nobody else knows. So, okay, yeah, yeah. I like the. Uh, I think I mentioned I, I got the uh, the Lexar, yeah, MX Pro. I think it is, and that comes with backup software. And actually, okay. it's neat because it's cross-platform too. So, yeah, uh, both on a on, on my PC and one of my Macs, I have certain folders that all uh, that will sync yeah. or back up to the uh, thumb drive, and it's big enough. The the one I got for uh, evaluation was a 16 gig, but then I actually ended up buying one that has 128 gigs, and it was yeah. only like 100 bucks, which to me is that's not bad. You know, relatively inexpensive for 100, 128 gigs on a flash in drive. a thumb drive. Yeah, I mean that's or a thumb drive. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Their their you know memory technology gets better. Yeah, no, that's good. You know what? I realized as we're talking about this, you and I have become obsessed with backups. I mean, it's I like I get you can probably tell. I get really excited when we start talking about how well backed up we are. That's there's something wrong with us. I mean, it's good. It'll save well, our no, bacon. Not, I'm I'm so glad that I did because I ran into this you know situation where the system was trashed. Yeah, and 
Yeah. If I didn't have the backups, it would have, you know, especially, I mean, not so much the apps. I mean, that's okay, but it's it's the data, really. And so scattering it about in multiple locations. That's, yeah, Pete and I need you, to you do some of that. You will be glad you did someday. Pilot Pete and I both have Drobos that we're going to uh, seed with our own crash plane backups and then trade. So he puts one at his house. He puts mine at his house. I put mine here. And, uh... And then we, we are crash planning to each other's homes. It's off, totally off site, but close enough that in 10 minutes, either one of us could go grab our drive and uh, it's not stored at somebody else's servers. So, A, we don't have to worry about compromise. And also, you know, you can save some money if you want to do it that way. So anyway, that's uh, that's something Pete and I need to sort out because that's cool. All right. Uh, if you want to sort out something with us, either it be a question or a um, tip or whatever you email us feedback at macgeekab.com that's feedback at macgeekab.com that's right that's feedback at macgeekab.com unless you are a macgeekab premium member in which case you can email us at premium at macgeekab.com i do want to say something about premium like i said in the last show i promised we would have the ui correctly reporting all of your transactions that is now the case we delivered on that promise finally uh, we found the bug that was in the third-party software we were using. It was actually a bug we created, but that's no great surprise. We're geeks. We tweak things. Uh, but uh, but anyway, that's that's uh, that's all set. You can see how much you've contributed. Anybody that has contributed at least 100 bucks or, or more uh, will qualify for the first round of gifts that will be going out in March. We're using February 28th as the cutoff. So that's on March 1st. We're going to go through and, and pull the names and then figure out what we need to do to get this stuff to you and all of that good stuff. So uh, we really appreciate your support. We know that, by and large, your premium support is simply here to uh, to help us and keep the show going and, and all of that. And we totally appreciate that. But this is our way of giving back. And uh, and so we are uh, so we are doing that. And you'll get more details about that as as. Uh, as we progress into March, but February 28th is that cutoff. So go to MacGeekGab.com uh, or uh, yeah. And then click on the premium thing or MacObserver.com slash TMO slash store slash account. But that's way too much to remember. Uh, and that will show you where you are on the, on the grand scheme of things. So awesome. Awesome. Uh, that's premium at MacGeekGab.com. If you want to email us there, John, how else can they find you? Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab, where you can find out when the next show is going to happen. That's right. The next live show, uh, the next live stream. I didn't say hi curious. to everybody in the chat room, John. I mean, we've, uh, we've interacted. We've taken questions. We've answered questions. Everybody, greetings. MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Thanks for joining us this morning or afternoon or whatever it is for you. And the way to get that, the way to get to that is to go to macgeekab.com slash stream which is not only streaming but you can also chat that's right that's right using old fashioned keyboard and text some uh, people still like that yeah it's fun we have a good time alright and you can find us on twitter macgeekab John F. Braun Pilot Pete Dave Hamilton Mac Observer all right there you can find Michael Johnston on twitter at Michael Johnston he converts the show to AAC for you all the uh, hosting is provided by Cashfly for all the bandwidth. We've got, uh, let's see, BB Edit from Bare Bones. We've got Text Expander from Smile. We've got Crash Plan. 
in the podcast marketplace. We've got Transporter. We've got Squarespace. It's an awesome group of sponsors we've got having here. We're having a blast doing this. We have uh, all the respect in the world for all of you that uh, that come and have fun with us. Uh, they're listening detached as you do in your cars and on the treadmills and all of that stuff. And then, of course, those of you that join us in the chat room, too. It's all great. We appreciate every one of you. And thank you very much. Have a great week. Have a great end of February. And don't get caught. Made up.